0: Chapter 6, verse 1, David again assembled all the best men in Israel, 30,000 in number. And David and all the men who were with him traveled to Baalah and Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name the Yahweh of hosts, who sits enthroned between the cherubim. There that are on it. And they loaded the ark of God on a new cart and carried it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. So David has conquered this, and he is making Jerusalem the center of all political power in the nation of Israel. He's been building it up with the king of Tyre and his building projects and logs and cedar and all that kind of stuff. And in this moment, David decides he also wants to bring God, so to speak, through the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle in the city. And he's going to make Jerusalem the center of of all the political or the religious spiritual power as well. Now, we're going to get the sense that this is where the Ark of God and the tabernacle are going to permanently stay from this point on. But later when we get the kings, we're going to find out that the Ark at that time is also in Gibeon. It seems to be that the tabernacle is still moving around, but that Jerusalem is going to be a semi-permanent, more year-round kind of location. And so he's not completely restricting the movement of the tabernacle, but he is reducing its movement a lot more by bringing it to Jerusalem. He decides he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant in as well. It says that they loaded it up on a cart, and they brought it from the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart. And they brought it with the ark of God up from the house of Abinadab on the hill. And Ahio was walking in front of the ark. And while David and all of Israel were energetically celebrating before Yahweh, singing and playing various stringed instruments, tambourines and rattles, rattles, and cymbals, sorry, it's all these years of being a father. When they arrived at the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah reached out and grabbed a hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled, and Yahweh was so furious with Uzzah that he killed him on the spot for his negligence. He died right there before the Ark of God. And David was angry because Yahweh had attacked Uzzah, so he called that place Perez Uzzah which means which remains his name to this very day. And David was afraid of Yahweh that day and said, how will the ark of Yahweh ever come to me? So David was no longer willing to bring the ark of Yahweh to be with him in the city of David. And David left it in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of Yahweh remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And Yahweh blessed Obed-Edom and all of his family. Why did God strike Uzzah down? In one sense, the law made it very clear that you weren't allowed to touch the ark. When they came into Bashan, all the way back in chapter 7, 1 Samuel, and they're bringing the ark from the Philistines and the Jerem and the Israelites open up to look in, they all died. But in another sense, it's like, come on, God. These are the priests of Yahweh, and the ark is literally going to fall over and smash on the ground, and all he was doing was just trying to protect it. Why is it that God really struck him down? Remember, it's not about touching the ark. God does not look at behavior necessarily; He looks at the heart and motivation. And He calls it an irreverent act. Why is this so harsh? The ark was supposed to be carried on their shoulder. known that the ark is supposed to be carried by priests from the Korahites. It is to be carried on poles on their shoulders. and is to be walked into the city and it's supposed to be covered. Nowhere are we told whether Uzzah and Ahio are the right tribal family within the Levites. We're never told that it's covered. And they definitely are not carrying in the right way. They've put it on a, a, a cart. In fact, of course it's going to fall off a cart practically. But if you're carrying it on your shoulders, if it does fall, it's just going to drop to the ground and you won't have to worry about anything bad happening to it if they carried it right. Now, why are they putting it in a cart? It's easier, way easier. It's a longer distance. They're going up that hill. They're thinking this is way too hard. They're going to carry it. And it also happens to be the exact same way that the Philistines send it back into Israel in chapter 7 of 1 Samuel. But the Philistines didn't know better. But even when they were sending it back to Israel, they had a great reverence for the ark by the time it got done with them. God tolerated their actions being improper because, one, they didn't have the law to know better, and, two, their heart was reverent towards the ark by that point. But these are the priests, Uzzah and Ahio, from the house of Abinadad and the line of Eli. They know the law. They should know. But there's a little bit of a sense where we already know what the house of Eli is kind of like. There's also a sense where familiarity breeds contempt, and you just get lazy with things so God strikes them down because they're supposed to know better. The irreverent act is not reaching out to protect it. The irreverent act is everything about it. In fact, it just says they're celebrating before Yahweh, but it never says that they were celebrating Yahweh. What just happened now that they have, they've just conquered a bunch of enemies. It may be that they're actually celebrating their victories more than Yahweh. And it could be that the Ark of the Covenant is being treated like a Macy Day party float. (laughs) And the party float falls over, and God forbid our expensive party float coming over. And everything here suggests that the entire thing is done the wrong way. And what's interesting is David gets angry... (laughs) And you're like, you know you're not right with God when you get angry at him for the way that he's clearly laid out in his law, how things are supposed to be done. He punishes you for violating what he's clearly laid out. And then he says, how in the world can the ark of Yahweh ever come to me? The answer is, it doesn't come to you, David. You come to it. And even you are not really allowed to come to it because only the high priest can do that one time a year. And what's interesting is that's the exact same question that Israel asked when they got defeated. Defeated by the Philistines because God wanted them to be defeated and the Ark of the Covenant got t- taken away. That's the only other time that question is asked. So the narrator's intentionally pulling you back to that circumstance and saying Israel really is no different than the Philistines right now in their heart and the way that they're dealing with the Ark of the Covenant. And of course the answer, that the narrator's already answered in a silent way, is that no one can come and stand before Yahweh. For all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. But what's interesting is after the people in beth when they opened it up and they all died, they sent it to the city of kerith And kerith was blessed. The people in beth die, but the people in kerith are blessed. They bring it to Jerusalem and they're struck down dead. They send it to Obed the Edomite and he's blessed for three months. And the answer to the question is, yeah, no one can come before, stand before Yahweh except for the humble. And God, this is almost an exact repeat of the previous story with the Philistines. And the point that God is making is only when you throw yourself down before Yahweh in humility and worship and reverence that one can truly stand before Him. But David's not looking at it that way and the priests are not looking at it that way. It's a party float, and they're saying, how can it come to me? And everything about this is not an unrealistic God who's just striking them down because they're protecting him. It's the fact that they never dealt with anything in the right way to begin with. And it's the same thing. Even in Bethsaan, it wasn't because they necessarily opened it. It's because they probably thought they were going to find out some secrets about God. And that's not humility. And so they're being struck down. And what God is now answering to David for the last three months is there is a right way and you can survive, David. It gives David plenty of time to do some heart searching too and some reflecting. And so this shows you what mental state of pride David is in right now. He's bringing the Ark of Covenant in and he's not really enthroning Yahweh. He's celebrating his enthronement. Verse 12, David told David was told that Yahweh had blessed the family of Obed-Edom and everything he owns because of the Ark of God. So David went and joyfully brought the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David. And those who carried the Ark of Yahweh took six steps, and then David sacrificed an ox and a fatling calf. Now David, wearing a linen ephod, was dancing with all of his strength before Yahweh, and David and all of Israel were bringing up the Ark of God, Yahweh shouting and blowing trumpets. Now, the implication here is that every seventh step they took, they made a sacrifice. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sacrifice. One, two, three, all the way into the city. Now, why is David making so many sacrifices? That's not really required. Yeah, he's being careful, and he's atoning the previous path of arrogance and pride. That path has been defiled by pride and arrogance, and he's atoning it now. As he brings in. And now they carry it the right way. And they do exactly. And then it says, not that they were celebrating before God, but that they're actually celebrating Yahweh Yahweh as he danced in the midst of it. So now this is not a Macy Day parade, it's more of a worship service. And David has changed his heart attitude completely. And once again, yes, David is really screwed up to have treated the Ark of the Covenant like that. But once again, one of the things that marks the man of God's own heart is he corrected himself. He corrected himself. And there's growth that's happening with him. As David was wearing a linen ephod. There seems to be nothing in the Bible that forbids that. He's not functioning as a priest, doing animal sacrifice, that kind of stuff. A linen ephod is just a vest. Um... There could be something bad about it, but there's just really nothing directly in the law hinting that. He was dancing with all the strength before Yahweh, and David and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of Yahweh, shouting and blowing trumpets. Verse 16. As the ark of Yahweh entered the city of David, Saul's daughter, Michael, looked out the window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before Yahweh, she despised him. They brought the ark of God, Yahweh, and put it in his place in the middle of the tent that David had pitched for it. And then David offered burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before Yahweh. And when David finished offering the burnt sacrifices and peace offerings, he pronounced a blessing over the people in the name of Yahweh of hosts. He then handed out each member of the entire assembly of Israel, both men and women, a portion of bread, a date cake, a raisin cake, and then all the people went home. And what you see here is just three months ago, David was acting like a king like all the other nations. It was about his state machinery. It was about his victories. It was about bringing the ark to him. It was about him as king. That three months of reflecting, he has repositioned his heart now. And now he's stripped himself of all his kingly ropes. And he looks just like a commoner now. And he's dancing with the commoners. And he's passing out bread to all the commoners. And he's opening up the wealth of the palace to the commoners. And remember that whole regulations of the Deuteronomy king was mostly to strip the king of all of his power. And in the very end of verse chapter, chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, in the very end of verse 20, it says, so that the king may not think that he is better than any of his countrymen. And David now looks and is mingling with and blessing them as if he's a fellow countryman. And at least in this moment, there's a heart change. And he's, this is what the Deuteronomy king looks like. This is what the Deuteronomy king looks like. But Michael's looking out, and she's despising him. And when David went home, verse 20, to pronounce a blessing on his house too, Michael, Saul's daughter, came out to meet him. And she said, how can the king of Israel, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself this day He has exposed himself today before servants, slave girls in a way that his vulgar fool might do. Basically, you're out there naked with all those girls. Now, was he really naked? Was he doing what he's doing was wrong? No. Why does she despise him? Two reasons. She sees him as a womanizer, a collecting of wives, treating women however it benefits him, and that's true. When she looks out, Everybody else just sees a guy dancing in the crowd. But what she probably can't see is all the other men. <laughs> and what she sees is that he's not wearing all of his robes. And so she's interpreting it through her lens of anger. He's out there naked with a bunch of women because of the way that she's been treated by him. And that anger is justified. That anger is justified. But what's interesting, that's what the, not the narrator's focusing on right here. I mean, in a practical, like, marriage counseling sense, that's 100% true. And the narrator's not saying it's not true, but the narrator's focusing on something else. And by specifically referring to her as Saul's daughter. And what she's angry at is he's not acting like a king. And what the narrator's trying to emphasize is she is a product of the house of Saul. And her definition of king is completely different than the Deuteronomic regulations for the king. And this is why Saul's family should not be king anymore. And so, yes, there is that practical marriage thing going on there, but it's also a theological... Remember, the Bible is primarily a theological book. And the theological statement the narrator is making is that the house of Saul has a wrong definition of kingship. And yes, David started off bad three months ago, but he was willing to correct himself. However, Saul's daughter, a product of Saul's house and kingship, cannot see that for what it really truly is or supposed to be. So there's multiple layers to her anger there. And this is why. So David replied to Michael, It was before Yahweh I was celebrating, before Yahweh who chose me over your father. That means that David, he's hearing that line as well. The entire family and appointed me as leader over Yahweh's people Israel. I am willing to shame and humiliate myself even more than this. But with the slave girls whom you mentioned, let me be distinguished. Now Michael, Saul's daughter, had no children to that day of her death. He basically makes a point like, I will humiliate myself even more before Yahweh. In the sense that I will lower myself and lift him up more and more and more and more. I learned my lesson three months ago. If you have a problem with that, then we're not united in this sense. And then it says that she never had children. Now the question is why? Is it because they have bad marital relations and he's not going to go to her anymore? But remember the whole reason that he took her to be his wife was to politically seal the deal with the house of Saul. And the only way that can happen is with kids. There's almost a sense that the narrator is communicating that God shut up her womb. Because God doesn't want the house of Saul in the palace. Because God has rejected the house of Saul. And her bad definition of kingship translates into God saying, you will have no children in this house. But here's the thing too. In the long run, if David would have just left her alone and kept her with her family, (laughs) her husband, They would have never had this problem, and the house of Saul could have gone on in a different way, and she could have a good marriage with somebody else, possibly. So yes, it's all there, but that's not what the narrator is focusing on. The narrator is focusing on this is the end of Saul's house, and and then through that avenue. There's two more avenues, but that will be talked about later.